Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There has been a profound change in Northern Ireland politics. The local government election saw Sinn Féin surge to new levels of support and a record number of new councillors. The DUP held on to what they had. But for the first time, the number of people who voted for nationalist parties was greater than the number of those voting for unionist parties. How did this come about and why? And what does this all mean for the future of our politics, culture and society? I'm joined by the Belfast Telegraph's Northern Ireland editor Sam McBride and by our security correspondent Alison Morris. Well, it was a quiet campaign, a lot of people, electoral campaign, I mean the local election campaign, a lot of people mightn't even realised it was happening. But then, as always, I think, election count day is great. There's lots of stories come out of it. We all really enjoy it. And change does happen. Sam? Yes, it's the dullest campaign that I can remember and there have been some quite dull campaigns recently but this one, really, there was probably about a week of a campaign, a couple of TV interviews, um, some of the big TV interviews, for instance, um, Sinn Féin's Northern leader Michelle O'Neill didn't do so that that lacked a bit of spark and there was very little that happened during it. It was all about Stormont, it was meant to be a local government election but actually it was about can you get Stormont back, can you not should you, should you not and then on election day, clearly people responded to something. I'm not sure you can say it was the campaign, but there was something that people wanted to say, and particularly nationalists wanted to say. They united around Sinn Féin to a degree that has never happened before in the history of Northern Ireland. Uh, and they also came out in larger numbers. It wasn't just that Sinn Féin were eating into the SDLP's vote, which they continue to do and which they have been doing for many, many years, and that in itself is significant. They got new voters. They got younger voters. They get people who were coming out to vote for the first time. And that's a really hard thing to do. Lots of people struggle to see the relevance of politics, particularly younger people. They have managed to crack that. And that's the real significance of this election. Anything you disagree with there, Alison? No, it is really true because when you look at the statistics, you can say, oh, the Sinn Féin came in and they cannibalised the SDLP or people before profit, but that does not account for the massive jump in seats that Sinn Féin made. They were clearly taking votes from all other places and a lot of those was the youth vote. Someone had mentioned something to me which was very interesting because last year, do you remember the £100 
voucher that you, that everyone got. You'd be on the electoral register to get that, which means there was more people on the electoral register than ever before. But those would have been young people who maybe had no need to be on it before. But that would have been exactly the same the whole way across Northern Ireland. But those young people from a nationalist point of view who maybe had their first polling card in their hand went out and used it where other people didn't. I was looking at statistics from a district elect, um, electoral area. So you have an area and say maybe some of that will be made up of very sort of loyalist estates and some of it right side by side will be really nationalist Republican estates and you could see from they know from the boxes when they open them because that's what way your vote is centred anyone who voted you know you'll go in and they'll say cast your vote in box B because that will be for your street your estate um, they knew from that that in some areas it was almost double so in one estate we're getting maybe 32-33% in a very unionist estate and over 60 like half a mile down the road, quarter of a mile down the road. That's the difference. I think if you can get your voters enthusiastic, if you can get them optimistic about getting out to vote and they really do, look at the difference it made. And Sinn Féin's success was massive, but they did lose one seat in Newry and Mourne by one vote. They lost a councillor by one vote. And if you ever say your vote doesn't count, these are the times. Council elections, there's so many variables, there's so many candidates. That's why as journalists, I think we don't like the... The counts as much as when you're doing the Assembly of the Westminster, they're just dead easy to work out what's going on. Whereas in council elections, you can have someone come from nowhere and just take a massive amount of transfers. That happened in 2019 in North Belfast. You had Fiona Ferguson from People Before Profit was elected on the massive surplus that Paul McCusker had. He had almost double um, the quota that it was needed to get him elected and that brought her over the line. This time he is now stood as an independent. His vote was down by over a thousand votes. There was no votes for Fiona Ferguson anymore. Where were they? They all went to Sinn Féin and that's where they all were. And they topped the polls. So you can see that that, and that is a real, not just getting your vote out, your core base vote out. People who are maybe fed up with the politics of another party and want to switch, but you've got to get those young people out. You've got to future-proof your party. And I think that's what Sinn Féin showed that they're doing. And with other parties, when they're doing the autopsy, because we all know right now, they're sitting in rooms and people are having fingers pointed at them. It was your fault. You messed up the, the vote management in that place. You did this. When they're doing the autopsy, they're going to have to really, really look at how they enthuse younger voters. I'm going to throw my script out to the, the door here. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting what you said about that vote, one vote uh, because I met many people. I've met many people over the last week or so and, and they said I was that one vote. I, they took personal responsibility. Say, I'm kicking myself. But some people did say that they that they went for, for Sinn Féin's instructions uh, and they regret that because they, they think that even though Sinn Féin almost managed a miracle oh, of, 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 of four votes, of four seats that, uh, you know, that they, that they didn't make it and then they lost a sitting councillor. Um, I heard something you said, Alison, uh, during the week and it's... You said, I'm from West Belfast and we just love voting. Oh, we do, we do. My mother and father are in their 80s and they're not very well at all, but like you would nearly have to wheel them around. They wouldn't miss a chance to vote. Um, you know, and like all my nieces and nephews, my children, my children were phoning me from early in the morning, what time are you going to vote at? It's almost like a national pastime. It's like a family fun day out. We love to vote, we really do. Um, where does that come from? It maybe comes from the time when you're being told, you know, the civil rights campaign and one man, one vote and all the things that come along with that. I mean, for me as a woman, I always look at the 
suffrage movement and what happened there. And you think that there was people, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of the women who came before us, who fought, um, and many of whom suffered greatly to get us a vote. I hate people going, I wouldn't be allowed, it doesn't make a difference. Of course yeah, it yeah. makes a difference. You have to get out and vote. But, but that leads, that, that asks the question then. And I mean, we can't, we, we can't draw a we can't we, we we can't draw blanket conclusions, but it does seem that in many unionist areas, and, and Alison, you've mentioned many work, working class unionist areas, working class loyalist states, that the vote didn't come out. Uh, why was that? Well, I think that first of all, if we look at Sinn Féin's vote and why it did come out, I think there's two reasons for this. First of all, you've got to give enormous credit to Sinn Féin. They enthused these people to come out. They are very organised. Um, they've certainly been knocking on my door for for years, not just for weeks before this this um, local government election. They've strategically been targeting um, the area where I live for years. Other parties are simply not doing that. So there is something very unique there about how they go about getting people to vote. But it's not simply about what Sinn Féin does. It's about what the DUP does. A lot of the reason why people vote is not simply about endorsing one person. It's about expressing opposition to another person. And what Sir Geoffrey Donaldson did last year in really stupidly um, and really undemocratically refusing to say whether he would accept Michelle O'Neill as the First Minister if Sinn Féin won the Stormont election, which we know they did, that has massively energised nationalism. It has brought back all of these memories of all sorts of discrimination. They believe firmly, um, almost to a person within nationalism, that this is what is happening, that, that Sir Geoffrey Donaldson is not serious about the protocol. He doesn't care about these other issues. It's all a fig leaf and it's actually about trying to stop Michelle O'Neill. I don't happen to think that's true, but I can totally understand why people think it is true and that's what matters. So those people were coming out in many cases to to say very clearly to the DUP, you want to get on like that? Fine, stuff you. We're going to vote in even bigger numbers and what are you going to do about that? wasn't quite a crocodile moment, but uh, it wasn't far away. And it's also not true, as you say, because I know at least, I can think, and I'm sure you could at the top of my head, of at least two DUP MLAs who would break her neck and run at high speed into the Deputy First Minister's office and hear Diane to take up that post. So it's not as if they have people saying, we're not doing it, we'll never do it, it'll never happen. There are people in that party actually want to do it or actually put their hands up and going, I will take that job. It's also founded on the idea among lots of people who don't understand the anti-protocol views in unionism that the protocol isn't really a serious issue. So yeah. it's a stupid issue, it's a made-up issue, it's not really true because they don't think it's a big issue. It is a big issue for lots of unionists. We know that from our polls in the Belfast Telegraph. That's now been made clear in this election where actually the DUP vote went up from last year, it went down from 2019, so it's down in, in um, comparative terms with 2019 with the last local government election, but it's actually up on what their support was last year. They're more popular for having stayed out of Stormont than they were last year. The Ulster Unionist vote, which is much more moderate on this issue and with a, with a party leader who says he would go back into Stormont tomorrow, it went down far more than any other Unionist party. So there, there is clearly an issue here. The incredible stupidity of Sir Geoffrey Donaldson was to not answer the question, to make it an issue. And it wasn't that he didn't answer the question once. The first time I heard this was Stephen Nolan asking him about this. I think it was last January. So months before the election, it was about 10 minutes of radio going round and round. Then he was asked again and again. He consciously thought this would help his party um, stave off defeat in that election. It didn't. And it created this huge millstone that now hangs around the neck of the entire DUP party. 
Uh, one of the after effects of, of that is what struck me is I kept seeing Colm Eastwood uh, having to demand that uh, Michelle O'Neill be made First Minister again and again and again. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's 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 that bad. That's not going to work out well. Um, just you, you've we've talked about how Sinn Féin uh, got their vote out. Uh, the headline on one of your recent pieces now. I know what you're going to say. I don't actually, read the headlines. I don't write headlines and I actually messaged them and asked them to change that headline but I'll let you away with it. Go ahead. Well, okay, okay. We'll, 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 we'll bring that up. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I wanted the edit in this to make sure that it says I don't write headlines because I'm going to have it on my headstone. I don't write headlines. It will also say it's cheaper to buy a bottle than a glass, which is also true. But those two things will both be in my headstone. I know. I know. I want to read this headline. <laughs> I'm flicking through this paper here. Well, the sub-editor who wrote this, who, who read your piece, and I mean... I did they, though, did they? Oh, so that's what it was. Well, I mean, uh, uh, if anybody's wondering, sub-editors are required to read the entire piece, in theory twice. They're, they're, but, they're uh, very valuable people. Uh, but, but the sub-editor wrote, Sinn Féin growth will plateau, but their position as dominant nationalist party is secure. You know what? If somebody had said to me two electoral cycles ago, uh, Sinn Féin's vote would plateau. I would have agreed with them because I would have said, where are Sinn Féin going to right. get their this, votes? This wasn't the headline I thought you were going to read out. It was the one that Sam's looking at now. <laughs> Mimicking Paisley's tactics has helped get Sinn Féin over the line. <laughs> well, we'll this talk is about, when I would have to leave West Belfast forever. We'll talk about that one. But listen, Sinn Féin were close to getting more seats. Uh, the, 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 younger, the younger nationalist people seem to have migrated in, t- in total. And it's funny because when we look at the, the transfers from the SDLP, they're not they're not going to Sinn Féin. So that tells me that there's a rump SDLP. There's people who are never going to vote for Sinn Féin. But it also tells me that that maybe SDLP vote is getting older and that younger people are by default not only voting Sinn Féin. So, so perhaps, perhaps this growth isn't plateaued at all. No, well, I mean, what they're doing and what we've already spoke about, see that future-proofing your vote, that means you always have a constant new stream of voters coming in. People turn who turn 18, you know, year on, year out. Every election, you'll have a whole big cohort of new voters. It's trying to keep them enthused. Or what you do see is your vote does start to dwindle because the demographic is older. Um, and those people, just by their very nature, they get older and it's very sad, but they die. And that's the point. So you have to make sure you're making your party attractive to younger people. And I suppose that that um, column that you were talking about, what I was sort of going back in historic context, because we've had, you know, a lot of documentaries about it recently just because it's the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. But if you go back further still to the hunger strike and to the death of Bobby Sands in that election and from Anna South Tyrone and Sinn Féin's, you know, um, Armalite and ballot box strategy, then you have people like Alec Maskey who, you know, became the Speaker of the House, became one of the biggest supporters of the peace process, you know, walking into um, Belfast City Council, you know, which was called, you know, a bastion of unionism. I think the Dome of Delight, the amount of fights and the arguments that went on in there. I used to cover the councils in my very early days as a journalist and they were widely entertaining, much more entertaining than they are now, let me tell you. But it was a very unionist council. Um, and you'd have seen that in decisions that were made of where money was going in terms of what parks got money, what, you know, what areas got amenities and all of that. And when you think about that and then think about now and then returning 144 
councillors. Completely unthinkable in terms of that growth. But that strategy worked for a number of reasons and that's why they sort of mimic in Paisley line came in because it was very true because if you knew anyone who lived in the Reverend Ian Paisley's constituency, they would tell you that his office was the hardest working, that if you went to there, if you had a problem with your housing, if you had a problem with your child not getting a school place, if you had any sort of local issue, he was the man that would sort it out. And that was the same with what happened in Republican areas. Sinn Féin set up those constituency offices. They trained their staff in how to look after people's social um, security com- uh, issues, how to deal with housing issues, how to deal with those day-to-day issues. And that grows your vote. That's what grows your vote. Because people then say, well, I called into that office because this A, B and C was wrong with me and that person fixed it. And, and that's the, how you grow your vote. One, one of the really concerning things for the SDLP and the Austrian Unionists who have collapsed to a significant extent in this election is that they have had that for years. They have yeah. had old councillors who have been there for decades in some cases. They have got potholes fixed for people. They've signed forms for people. They've helped them out when there's been flooding. They've done all of that basic stuff. And that is accrued to yeah. that individual. And they've still lost. That's the really concerning thing. Yeah. In a council election, that counts for the most. That is the election where those things count for the for the for the for the most to to a, to a councillor's account to feel like it's like a bank balance. Yeah. And even that wasn't enough. And there were people who are completely new figures for Sinn Fein coming in, mopping up council seats, and these people who have been there for decades are being just completely blown away. Although, just to, just to stay with Sinn Féin for one more second, and it occurs to me that if you went back in time and told Alex Maskey and every all of the other councillors at the time that one day Alex Maskey would be at the coronation of King it, Charles... Not just the coronation, the, the funeral of the Queen, the coronation of the King. He was standing beside Michelle O'Neill when they met the King, when he came here just after the Queen had died on that sort of tour around the regions. Um and this, you know, was a man we used to give an old boxer. He was, a, you know, the sort of hard man of Sinn Féin. And you can see how that definitely softened over over the years. But that strategy can go back to then. But what I will say, because I think we're being slightly unfair to the SDLP, they did make some gains. But when I say that about when you're doing the autopsy, how did they make the gains? Paul Doherty, a man who runs the food bank, who runs the uniform swap for people who couldn't afford a uniform, who I would see constantly in West Belfast on the road out and about. He did the work. He lost, I think this was maybe the third election he's ran in. He, he lost two elections, didn't give up, kept on going, did the community work. Um, they lost Paul McCusker in North Belfast, who would be of a very sort of similar makeup, I suppose. Um, but in terms of that, if the SDLP want to regrow their party, they're going to really need to start recruiting not politicians, but activists, people who are embedded in their community and want to make a difference. And they're going to have to start from that that way up. And while Paul McCusker was lost to the SDLP, he didn't lose a seat because he's an independent now. So, yes, yeah. that, that's, that's an example that if he had still been in the party... That would have been another one for them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I when I I sometimes get uh, Paul McCusker and Paul Doherty mixed up. Me too. Uh, but, uh, and it's because they do some. But I, I did think it was interesting in both of the places that they stood and won that people before profit lost out. And I thought, I thought people are are are. are I mean, people before profit did okay, but it seemed to me that people chose one kind of socialism over another. They, did, they didn't really. I mean, they lost. You know, they they lost Fiona Ferguson. Um, they lost one of the Collins brothers. Um, you know, they managed to keep one seat in, in Colin, which is the only one that they kept in Belfast. And I think they kept one in Derry, didn't they? And the two previously. They they have lost. It's, I mean, their vote has been going down. At one point, if you remember, Jerry Carroll had almost two quotas at one stage and it went down. 
I mean, there's a number of reasons, I suppose. It is Sinn Féin sort of mopping up all those votes. But also, I think Brexit killed people for profit. You know, they were in favour of Brexit because... Like, and, and yet, and yet, after Brexit, their vote went up in the council election. So yeah. one one of the bizarre things is that when Brexit was a bigger issue in the twenty nineteen election, it was much more live. It was being fought over at the time. Now it's kind of done. Their vote went up. They get extra councillors. Now that that's kind of in the back mur- in the in the rearview mirror, it's yeah. gone down. And I I think that one of the big problems for people before profit is not having Stormont. It might sound weird because they're not a particularly uh, yeah. a, a party which are particularly fond of Stormont. They they are quite irreverent there. Um, they were the first people, I think, not to not to wear ties in the chamber. They, um, Eamon McCann, um, was 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 somebody who pushed the rules to the point of breaking them at points. But that was a platform for them. Sinn Féin don't need a platform. They're big enough. They can walk yeah. into a TV studio, walk into a radio studio. We're covering their press releases. People before profit. I, I was talking to Jerry Carroll at the Count um, at, at Belfast City Hall, and I, I said to him, "I can't remember the last time I wrote about you guys," and. It's not that I'm not trying to write about them. I don't get very many statements from them. So maybe there's a role for their press office there. But all the time when they were in Stormont, I was writing about them. And it was probably only a single line at the bottom of a five, 800 word um, piece where Jerry Carroll said something. And it was because it was interesting. He's so left wing. He says the things that other people don't say. And the same applies for the Greens. The Greens in that corner in Stormont with Claire Sugden and to a lesser extent, Jim Allister, who can can get coverage himself because he's this big figure. He's got a hardworking press officer, et cetera, et cetera. but these other people are losing out and that is where I think Sinn Féin actually now are benefiting from not having Stormont yeah, even though they obviously say they want back yeah, in. Strange, I didn't, I didn't anticipate we're going to, I didn't think I'd get down as far as people before profit but it, it, yeah. there are a number of things because I actually thought that especially people like Fiona Ferguson probably yeah. got more and had a higher stance. She did, uh, she did more first preference votes. She did be doubled, I think her first, she went from 400 to 700. High, but they, I think my point is she had a very high profile, media profile. Yeah. Yeah. But I just wonder, and I know the vote went up, but I just wonder if you are perhaps concentrating or seemed to be concentrating on more international things and more, I suppose, yeah. philosophical things. Does it really work in, in North Belfast? I'm, I'm not sure about it's that. It's all about the transfers too, isn't it? And Sinn Féin's vote management is to the point where they don't have a transfer to spur. Every transfer goes to the next person to get them in and they manage that with such, you know, accuracy. I mean, it's laser focus that there's nothing left at the end for the, the smaller ones. And one of the things that people before profit specialised at, if you like, were holding Sinn Féin's feet to the fire in Stormont, saying you're not left wing enough. You say yeah. that you're almost Marxist. You're not remotely like that. You're here cozying up to capitalists. And they didn't have that platform. And yeah. so there, there are lots of budget cuts going through Stormont at the moment. Sinn Féin can wash their hands of that. It's nothing to do with them. They can quite honestly say, this is the fault of the DUP. We're not doing this. As soon as they go back in, if they go back in with the DUP, suddenly, at least, at the very least, the blame is shared. They can say, well, yes, you maybe had to um, put some cuts through, but you could have raised taxes on big houses. You could have done this, you could have done that and you didn't do it and I think that's a massive problem now for people before profit. I think they miss Eamon McCann too don't they, that mm. massive figure of Eamon McCann being on all those broadcasts. I quite wanted like before I die to live in a world where Eamon McCann was in charge wouldn't it, be like first Bueller's day off, everybody get what they want be great crack, free love for everyone be in world where Eamon McCann is president It'll never happen, but it's a nice thought. <laughs> well, that's a thought. But in all seriousness, I, I, I'm very struck by what you've said about, um, the, you know, that the, the people before profit needed Stormont and needed because I, uh, I heard Jerry Carroll being interviewed after uh, he was aware that they'd lost a number of seats. 
and he, he put a positive spin on it and he seemed to say, well, now we're going to have more time for our protests. Uh, and that's more important to us, you know. We're we're out in the street, and and I and I and I just wonder if it's a reality. That's a positive way to approach it from his it, perspective, it but I'm not sure that's what and, he and really course, meant. Of course, Alison, for Sinn Fein to do that, uh, for Sinn Fein to manage a vote like that requires something on the other side. It requires people to actually ask Sinn Fein what. Well, what order need, will I you vote You don't in? need to ask him because this is what happens. You show up to vote. The wee, you know, some wee fella, wee girl, you know, young girl, as I said, because they have a team and Sinn Féin will tell you, you know, we're not party members, we're activists and they willingly take days off work um, to go and stand there and they hand you a piece of paper and it will say in big massive writing, one, two, three, four, um, and in some cases, five, six, <laughs> as in Black Mountain and that, and people write them down in that order unless of course you have a personal preference for someone and in lots of cases that person might be someone who's done something for you in the past or who's done something for your family or um, not to get Sam in trouble you might be related to them because we're all pretty much related to each other <laughs> I don't, don't, don't want to be getting Sam and bother here <laughs> well that brings me on to a wonderful piece of scripting by uh, Ender McClafferty it was heard on the BBC Sunday Politics and he spoke of Border pole unionism. I like that. We're going to hear an awful lot more. <laughs> that script, and it just makes, makes me want to curl up beside the fire and purr. Thanks, Enda. We, we'll be using that. But what he's referring to, of course, is, and I shudder to use the word, but demographics in a wider sense, because that's one of the scores, if we're really primitive. Because for the first time, nationalism, if we put it all together, and, there, and there's some debate about just exactly what it would be because I noticed some people put the Workers' Party in there well people mightn't including the Workers' Party uh, not that that makes a huge difference to, to, if, if we're honest um, but you know viewed in the long arc of history the scale of unionist decline is dramatic that's the what the sub-editor wrote when he read your piece Sam. I, th- I think actually I wrote that one oh, but yeah, yes, yeah, yes yeah. So, <laughs> I'll blame the sub when I don't like the headline okay. don't tell them you write headlines oh. they'll be asking me why I don't from 53 from 53% in 1997 to 39% now that that is that is dramatic by anyone's it is. So I was I was going through this um, actually before the election and then I updated it with, with what came out of this election. And essentially from 1997, I had added up all the Unionist Party's votes, all the Nationalist Party's votes, all the others' votes like Alliance and the Greens and then all the Independents. And it, it's, it's difficult because you could break down the Independents. There are people like Paul Berry, who's a former DUP MLA, who's an Independent who got 2,000 votes or something. He's clearly a Unionist. Yeah. There are other people who are clearly Nationalist Independents, but it's very difficult to I left that out, especially when you go back in history. It's very hard unless you've got incredible knowledge. Even I think Nicholas White, the incredible, the 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 uh, incredible sophologist who um, runs the uh, Arc Northern Ireland Elections website, struggles sometimes to work out who's who on that spectrum. So let's stick to parties to keep it simple. And looking at the parties, yes, in 1997, unionism got 53% of the vote. But as recently, and this is what surprised me, as recently as 2014. 2014, that's nine years ago, unionism got 51.4% of the vote in council elections. Or sorry, they got 51.4% of the seats. All these figures are, are, are a percentage of the seats. And now that has collapsed to just about 40%. 
for unionism. So in the space of nine years, they've gone down, what, 11 and a half odd percentage points. That's an astonishing decline. You map that out on a straight line, and it's not going to be a straight line. But if, if it was that level of decline over the next 10 years and the 10 years after that, it's a pretty terrifying prospect for unionists. And it's not that the nationalist proportion of seats has dramatically increased in that period. Lots of the others now are making up more of the numbers there. The likes of the Alliance Party in particular, the Greens are still relatively small. But that's a massive problem for unionism. And the response to that, I think, has been really interesting, that rather than the DUP look at this and rather than unionism as a whole, look at this and say, oh dear, this is an emergency. This is really dramatic and serious for unionism as an ideology. There's largely an attempt by the DUP to spin this and say, well, you know what, if you go back and look at what nationalists were winning in 1998, it wasn't that much more, or it, it's, a, it's a, not that much more now than it was then. That's really myopic, I think. That's fingers and ears territory. It's not so bad for the DUP because they held all their seats. They're yeah. eating a larger slice out of a smaller pie, but it is a smaller pie. And the DUP is meant to care about something more than simply preserving itself. It's meant to care about the union and it's clearly not protecting it right now. But you go back to the end of McLafferty's border pole unionism and, and, and you know, when unionist politicians are pushed, they will say, well, it'll be all right in the day when they, you know, they mean in a referendum because they, they do feel, yes, political unionism mightn't be as attractive as it should be, but they don't see that there's any real uh, threat to the border. And- I, I think they've got a lot of logic on their side when they say that. How do any of us know until it actually happens? It's all supposition. It's all very educated guesses. But when we look at polling, it's very clear that the pro-union vote is massively higher than the unionist vote. Some of the people who would vote for the union in a border poll are voting for Sinn Féin right now, according to polling. People might say that's absurd. Some Republicans laugh at this and say it's just delusional. It's not. It's entirely logical for somebody to want to vote for somebody who is a nationalist, who's going to protect their interests as they see it, get a GAA pitch maybe in their area where they don't have it. Let's say if you live in East Belfast, somebody who's going to stand up for Irish language rights, perhaps somebody who's going to do lots of things that are culturally nationalist, but they don't necessarily want right now, even if at some future point they want to, to get rid of the union. Maybe they work in the public sector. Maybe they like the NHS. Maybe they're worried about their pension. There are all sorts of reasons. And so that's the that's the sort of um, the, the saving grace for unionism right now. But it's incredibly perilous territory if these parties that are meant to exist for one reason, to defend the union, are collapsing in terms of their support at the polls. And Alison, I mean, Emma Little-Pengelly has pointed out that nationalism hasn't really grown. So, I mean, one has declined, but if nationalism doesn't grow, well, what's, there's no well, problem. It, it does. And I mean, this, the, the census showed us that. And obviously there's ageing populations. It's slowed down, let's face it. It's slowed down in, in lots of in lots of ways. And also then you have to remember that the, the last census showed about 125,000 people who have made this place their home, who didn't, didn't live here before at all. You know, we're changing in terms of our demographics and who we are and what we are and how we see ourselves. Um, and the border poll would be about so much more than just what your passport's going to say because what we know is that people will stay with the status quo unless the status quo is unbearable. And that is where I think when I look from, because let's face it, I'm looking from the outside in at unionism. I am a nationalist. That is what I am. And when I look at unionism, I think that is repeated self-sabotage if you just made this place easy and comfortable 
and just work. It doesn't have to be, you know, greatly prosperous. It just means that people need to know that when they leave school or college that there's a job for them, that, you know, they can pay their bills at the end of the month and get a holiday once a year. I mean, it's, you know, not people looking to be millionaires or billionaires, just comfortable. Well, then you would find it a lot more difficult to persuade them to vote in a border poll because you're voting for the unknown. Even no matter how much preparation you do on the run-up to it, you're still voting for the unknown. Um, so the job to persuade people is on the side of those who are pro-unity. They actually have the bigger job, if you like, because they have to say, no, this will be better and this is how it's going to be better. And all unionism had to do was keep this place nice and safe and prosperous and that people could get along and, you know, that we're not saying, you know, pipe bombs outside or bomb scars outside pitches where people are just trying to train for a sport or, you know, people constantly, you know, denying people Irish language rights or constantly using politics of negativity. And those sort of things are, I think, are just acts of self-harm in terms of of the the future of the union and not future-proofing it. And the other thing is to ask yourself why so many really bright, smart young people from the Protestant community go to university elsewhere and refuse to come back again. You know, and that isn't happening because it hasn't happened in the same numbers. We do have a lot still of young people who leave here. But in terms of the nationalist community, those people who have skills and and who go to university, a lot of them tend to stay. They go to Queen's and stay here. Or they go to University Ulster, they stay here. They even go to university in Dublin and they stay here. But why are they losing all that bright young talent? Because that's going to future-proof the union as well. And yet no one seems to care. And just, just to pick up on one thing that Alison said about Emma Little Pengelly talking about nationalism hasn't really grown very much. Um, you can spin numbers all sorts of ways. But when I look at the stats that I went through here in 1997, um, the, the nationalist parties got 34% of the seats in council elections. In this election, that went from 34 to 39.6. That is significant growth. Now, it's not doubling, it's not trebling, but that's a significant growth um, alongside the fact that unionism is shrinking. We've been talking about demographics in the census uh, and I know you've written about this and I know there was a Twitter reaction to what you've written. Um, <laughs> well, th- and things can be taken out of context. So I would have thought... I'm uh, laughing because I don't have to justify this. For you, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm laughing at it because in a, in a sense, in a sense, and we, we, we can look at the demographics profile, in a sense, I would have thought pointing out that, you know, that eventually what we see from census over over 60, 50, 40, 30 years, that eventually we're going to see that having an impact on politics. I would have thought that that was stating the obvious. Not everybody agreed. Not everybody seems to agree, no. Um, so, I mean, just, just to explain this for people who maybe haven't followed this um, and who, who could blame them for not having done so, but I wrote in the Sunday Independent that the the growth of Sinn Féin, the huge growth of Sinn Féin in this election could be traced back to maternity wards in the years after the Good Friday Agreement. And people in some cases took this as me suggesting they thought that somehow women who were Catholics in, I don't know, the late 1990s were somehow deliberately having children in the hope that an 18 years' time they would vote Sinn Féin. I mean, clearly that's preposterous. The fact is that the people who were born in those years are now coming onto the electoral register. So there's about seven years' worth um, of people coming onto the electoral register who are now new voters. And more of those people are now Catholic than are Protestant. And that's hugely significant. It is not because um, that in any way people who are Catholic or Protestant automatically are going to vote for Sinn Féin or the DUP. But clearly a Catholic is more likely to vote for Sinn Féin and a Protestant is more likely to vote for 
the DUP. It's an easier sell for those parties to those categories of people. And that, that I think, is a very significant element of this. It's not simply about, you know, counting the Catholics in a constituency, as Sinn Féin have done in the past and claimed that it means a nationalist majority. It doesn't. And when they, when they claimed that, they lost the election. So these, these things are far more complicated. Lots of young people, Protestant, Catholic, atheist, whatever they might identify as, they really resent the idea that simply because they were born into a certain part of Belfast or part of Northern Ireland, or their parents have a certain religious view, if any, um, or their parents have certain political views, that they ought to simply have those rubber stamped onto their foreheads as a child. But they're clearly much more likely to be open to the idea that a certain party brings to them. And Sinn Féin have been far more successful, as Alison has said, and as lots of people have observed, at getting young people to come out and vote for them. Why is the DUP not doing that? Well, I think lots of us know the answer to that. They're, they've been really inept over recent years. They've been bogged down in Brexit debates of their own making, problems of their own making. They've become incredibly negative. They've circled the wagons every time they've pulled them in a little bit, but said, let's just keep doing this. I mean, that's not very attractive to young people. And increasingly, they are struggling to win that argument with the youth. Talking about the demographic. I'm going to say, I am one of eight children, so it's a specific sort of like. <laughs> but the, the bigger problem is not in terms of the, the growth, because as you say, young people sometimes actually rebelliously vote against whoever their parents voted, voted for. And that's where Alliance obviously has that, you know, well, under 40 demographic. I mean, that's the point I was going to bring up with, well. you, with, with, with you, Alison. I mean, we're talking about these demographics, but, but, the, but, the, but, but certainly the nationalist vote and the percentage of Catholics, of cultural Catholics or nominal Catholics, isn't the same. So what perhaps I, yeah. those, that demographic shift is being swallowed up by alliance. No, well, what I would say is, is that it's sort of the bigger problem if, for unionism in the long term is that if you go back to my mother's generation and grandmother's generation, where they had huge families. I mean, I grew up on a street um, and when I was a child, there were, there were eight of us and the smallest family in our street would have had five children in it and they were considered a small family. I think I went to school with one person who was an only child and I used to be very jealous that she had chocolate biscuits and a wrapper because that was like being rich. Do you know what I mean? It was only because there was only a million children in her house. But every house in our street had six, seven, eight, nine. Some even had 11 or 12 children in them. Clearly, this is all to do with, you know, women being denied body autonomy. It was denied, at one stage, we even denied contraception um, because of their religion and doctors refused to even give it out. All of that. We can go back over that if we want and how my mother's poor generation got a lot of her were downtrodden in terms of the difference between religion and state and all of that. But what did happen around, I suppose, the time when I was born in the, in the 70s and then in the 80s is that because of the life that she had had and because of the life that they had had, there was a real push in working class nationalist areas towards education. And that is what we're seeing now. We're seeing that growing Catholic middle class, that nationalist middle class who are moving out of where they come. They're moving out into the suburbs. And then their children are more likely to be university educated because if you went to university, your kids are more likely to go to university. And that, I think, it gives a sort of optimism. And maybe is that where unionism are failing to tap in to get their young people and their young voters optimistic about the future? There is an optimism that I feel around that sort of growing nationalist middle class who may not be Sinn Féin voters at all. They may vote for Alliance and a lot of them do. But they do feel optimistic in terms of the future and they are more likely to complain um, when things aren't running properly. When we do have a collapse of Stormont, they are more likely to have their voice heard. You know, they're not the quiet 
the quiet minority or majority or minority is the ones who would have been in our majority. There are people who are not afraid to come out and speak their minds. And what, what you're saying there, Alison, relates to something that two people in Unionist Party said to me at the Count Centre. They said in, in, in Belfast, they said that the Unionist parties as a whole were struggling to get good candidates, struggling to persuade particularly professional people in unionism to stand as candidates. And as a result, one of these individuals said to me, and I'll not say who who this individual relates to, obviously, um, but they said that there was a person that was put forward by the DUP who was a thug. They said he's a thug. And that was their view of it. That's a unionist saying that. That's somebody who's a unionist who's at a count centre, a very politicised person. And that was their view of the quality of candidate in that person. Obviously, most DUP candidates are not thugs. I'm not suggesting that. They weren't suggesting that. But the difficulty here is that you you potentially, from the DUP's perspective, get into a spiral. You put up very unimpressive candidates in some areas. And then other unionists who are voters look at that and say, we don't want to be associated with that. That is not, that is not something that represents us. And so they either don't vote at all or they go to Alliance, they go somewhere else and that becomes more and more pronounced. Whereas in nationalism, as Alison has said, there's much more sense of confidence, a sense of being um, moving forward into a brighter future that's brighter for nationalism, that's brighter individually in terms of better education and all of those things. And that again is another huge difficulty that I think from unionist perspective, when you look at the DUP, when you look at the Ulster Unionist Party, they're not even starting to address that. Yeah, you know, something you brought up there, Alison, and we, we've heard it before, and I kind of... Was it the chocolate biscuits in the wrapper? Was that what it was? Well, you know what? I, 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 I Did have, you get chocolate biscuits? I have to admit, I, wa- I, was, I, I was thinking, and maybe I come across as quite bourgeois now, but I was thinking, what biscuits came with no wrapper? But you know... You, you, <laughs> But, you know, I can remember a certain brand of, you know, you would go in, there was there was a certain brand of cola that was only 10p and your mum would get it and you would everything be so ashamed. That, everything that we had as children came in a full yellow packet. That was it. Do you remember yellow pack food? You opened the cupboard, it would have blinded you. Everything was in a yellow packet. That's what kind of biscuits I ate, if I got them any at all. The thing you said about, I mean, and it's a different podcast, and I often say I, in a podcast, <laughs> it's a different podcast, it's the next podcast. I mean, I, you know, I suppose that if you were in, a, 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 you know, people who, in, and there's, from working class loyalist estate would say, you know what I mean, that they would obviously also say that they take the education of their, you know, you know, very seriously. Increasingly so, because I speak to a lot of um, loyalists as a security correspondent and I'm in loyalist communities. And one of the guys who I would have dealt with a long time ago, he would have had affiliations to the UDA. I phoned him up one day and he says, I'm at my daughter's graduation. She's graduating to be a doctor and he'll keep him a very working class. But the thing about it is, is that push... If my mother's generation, that didn't happen then. We are seeing it now and we're definitely seeing it now because those industries don't exist and we know that. All there is is call centre jobs, you know, if you don't. And so you are seeing an increasing amount of people who would say, they would actually phone me up and say, look, my daughter, son, granddaughter wants to be a journalist. Could you come and have a chat with them? Um, And I'm increasingly seeing that in the loyalist community, but you'll not see that for another 10 or 20 years. Do you know what I mean? I mean, what we're seeing now is a result of that big push in education back in the 70s and 80s. I think uh, a term that has been decommissioned and I don't think we're ever going to hear it again is majority community. It's been a while since I've heard it. Uh, And it implied so many things. But you've written in the past now that no matter what happens, Northern Ireland will change. Well, has it will, changed. It will, it will change, but it will change because we are now a land of three minorities. Um, nationalism, unionism, in terms of those as political ideologies as people vote in elections, not whether people are unionist or nationalist, um, and others. 
I mean, it's it's roughly 40, 40, 20 in terms of the rough percentages. Now, that, that will fluctuate slightly, um, but there there is a very clear um, situation there where, where what, what we have known in the past in Northern Ireland will not be the future. So, for instance, I think that there is a very, there is very significant reason to believe that Irish unity is nowhere near as close as lots of nationalists and particularly Republicans would like to think it is. Um, lots of the hard work for that has barely begun. I was down in Cork a few days ago and Professor Brendan O'Leary gave an incredible talk for about an hour about how you could bring about Irish unity. And once you listen to it, once you think about it, once you read his books and you read his articles and um, Podrig O'Malley has a brilliant book about this out recently, you realise how incredibly difficult and how incredibly um, long in terms of the number of years involved that process would be. But I think what we will see in the short and medium term is that Northern Ireland will stay inside the Union, but it will look and feel profoundly different to the Northern Ireland that I grew up in, that all of us here grew up in. And that, that is already increasingly the case. So you will see more, more nationalist symbols, for instance, in places like Stormont. You'll maybe see a statue of John Hume, maybe even Martin McGuinness at Stormont, where at the moment there's Carson and Craig. I mean, those, those sorts of things. I, I was walking around Belfast City Hall uh, um, during, during the uh, count and Lots of the stained glass windows, lots of the um, figures are relating to the military, relating to unionist history. That has already started to change. Sinn Féin has been, has been complaining about that. Alliance have been saying that's a legitimate complaint. They have been agreeing to change some of those, to bring in additional stuff. So th- there'll be a big argument about that. But one final thing about that is that if Northern Ireland does become much more, let's say, culturally nationalist, culturally Irish in that sense, does that make Irish unity more or less likely? If it becomes more comfortable for somebody who likes the Irish language, who plays GAA, who maybe feels in some way Catholic, whatever that means in a in a in a in a much more secular society, do they actually want all the disruption of Irish unity, all the uncertainty of it, all the possibility of violence if it goes badly wrong, etc. etc. I think that arguably makes it harder rather than easier. Sam McBride, Alison Morris, thank you very much. Thank you. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish independent. Terms and conditions apply.